And good evening! Today is Wednesday, somehow still. September 29th, 2021. I'm still your host, Evan George. Welcome to Bostopia Nightly News. I'm going to fix my mic real quick. Bam, get it on the preferred setting. And yeah, good evening, everyone. Welcome to my fun TikTok friends down in the corner, as always. It's much better if you watch it on Twitch. I'm going to be showing no videos today, but definitely some news articles that it might be fun to watch. But I'll keep my attention on the Facebook, Twitch, YouTube crowd, as always. But if you have any questions, drop them in the chat and either, and I'll try to get to them during the segment breaks. But the first segment story that I wanted to bring up today, we're not going to cover anything about the election today. Uh, it's a pause in the election. There are really no big news. Oh, I guess I lied. I'm, let's hit it quickly. So I think the last, I uh, the last time I talked about the mayoral race, someone on the chat asked me if I thought Kim Janey and Idrea would endorse. So maybe it was in one of the one of my videos. I can't recall. And I said Kim Janey definitely not. Andrea possibly for Wu. And of course I was, as always, wrong. With Kim Janey coming out last weekend um, to endorse Michelle Wu and Andrea Campbell writing an op-ed basically saying, I'll meet with both of them and, and maybe I will. I mean, Kim Janey's endorsement is not at all surprising. And by that, I mean, Michelle is in the best place to win, hands down, for a lot of the reasons I discussed in my last episode, my last nightly episode. So I recommend if you have not listened to that, please do, because I go into a lot more detail with the race. But M Michelle is the clear favorite. It's going to take some massive upset that we can't foresee to knock uh, Michelle Wu off the path. And so now is the time to get on her good side. And what, what better way to get on someone's good side to publicly endorse them in the race. And that is the, the play Kim Janey is doing. I have no idea what Kim Janey's aspirations are for her political life. Maybe she wants to get out of the game. But either way, it's always good to have the mayor on your side. And, I mean, the same is true with Andrea. On a pure policy perspective, there is absolutely no credible argument that Andrea can make that Michelle Wu is worse than Anissa Savi george especially where it comes to the communities that Andrea represents from District 4. And maybe she just wants a seat at the table. No pun intended, but maybe she just wants to be wooed by Wu. Who knows? She might have her eye on the Suffolk DA spot if the Senate ever lets Rachel Rollins actually come up for a vote, because it seems like the Republicans might try to rally, make an example out of it. Because what better way to drum up Republican support than to bash a black woman. That's a pretty uh, stable playbook from theirs. So we'll see. And I think John Santiago, actually, no, he hasn't. Uh, Ricardo Arroyo came out a few days ago to very little fanfare to endorse Michelle. Again, that's somewhat meaningless. It, it is more about him just trying to get on the good side of the mayor, even though Michelle knows. Michelle knows uh, what he did. We'll call it that. And 
Last night, I got to speak to Julia from Reply Guys, just about Boston and Massachusetts politics. So it was really cool. I'll be sharing whenever that episode comes out as a podcast. And in preparation for that, I was reviewing just some of Michelle's policies because I wanted to be able to speak to that since it was a national audience. I'm sure they would get sick of me talking about the minutiae of Boston DSA. Uh, local elections, and people want to know the mayor, even though we did get to spend a lot of time on that, which I was uh, very excited about. And in my preparation, I was reading Michelle's climate policy, that big document that she dropped. And I noticed as part of it, and I'm assuming this had to have been the connection, but as part of her climate change proposals for the city of Boston, I think she mentioned defunding. She mentioned the concept of defunding, maybe it was Boston pensions, some of our finances from fossil fuel infrastructure. That's the only way without me bringing it up for me to try to imagine how this connection came about. And in it, she referenced in 1984, Boston doing a very, very similar defund movement. And that really caught my eye. So I went to, now I'm blanking on what you call it. I followed the, the notes. I went back to the uh, source. And what Michelle was referencing was something I did not know, but I know a lot of people who watch the show would probably be interested in, is a 1984 policy from uh, the city of Boston as I struggle to shrink my camera. Da-da-da-da. Music, as always, brought to you by Miracult. And I did not know this, but in 1984, the city of Boston vigorously supported the BDS movement against apartheid in South Africa. And this is a part of history that now everyone tries to go back and act like they were on the right side. But this was very controversial, especially in the early and mid-1980s, to come out in support of the black and marginalized populations of South Africa who were living in an apartheid system which just very um, basically means two separate systems of government, normally around racial ethnic lines. And this is really where BDS comes from, boycott, divest, and sanctions. And the reason this was so striking to me, and I wanted to bring it up, is um, last week's episode, I talked about how, I think it was Patch.com, did an article about Michelle Wu's receiving contributions from APAC or members of APAC who very strongly are against any sort of BDS movement against Israel because of their war crimes. And that's not my classification. That's the United Nations. They're war crimes against the Palestinian people. And there are many of us who very much would love to see Michelle Wu adopt a BDS policy. And the fact that she referenced it as talking about fossil fuel infrastructure I had to highlight it, and I I want to make sure everyone knows this history. So in 1984, the Boston mayor, Flynn, and I guess there were other cities, New York, Philadelphia, Washington, which passed very similar divestment language. However, Boston's went the furthest, and I want to quote him now. It's important that Boston, as the cradle of liberty, send a message that it objects to human rights violations. And imagine a Wu mayor coming out with that same exact sentiment, that same exact beliefs about the BDS movement, again, uh, against the state of Israel. And, and here are some of the things that this called for. 
prohibits retirement funds of city workers from being invested or deposited in U.S. banks that lend money to the government of South Africa. Now, that would almost keep us out of every bank. But that is so powerful as a policy move. Not that we will pull our retirement funds from, I guess, any uh, listings on the NASDAQ, I guess, that come out of the uh, state of Israel. This is saying we will not work with banks that are involved with the apartheid of South Africa. Prohibits all public funds from being deposited with banks that make loans to South Africa here. And there are, again, this was very controversial. Reading now, the Reagan administration advocates a policy of constructive engagement with South Africa. The U.S. has said U.S. Uh, the U. Forgive me. The U.S. has said South Africa's political system is morally wrong, but maintains it's easier to promote reform through private coaxing rather through public criticism. Again, even criticizing the government of South Africa back then would get you in trouble. And here, at least, the U.S. government admitted that it was morally wrong. Have you ever heard anyone from the Biden administration say that the war crimes being committed by Israel against the Palestinian people are morally wrong, that their structure is morally wrong in their treatment? It's amazing, 1984, to see just this level of moral clarity for a decade that we blame for so much (laughs) that went wrong. And for the mayor of Boston to take that stance, I think, is incredibly powerful. And it's something that we should hold Michelle to when she's in the mayoral office. I mean, at a minimum, minimum, keeping Boston police from going over to train with the IDF. That's at a minimum. And on that question, she said that, no, she would not support no longer doing that. It's a double negative, a little complex. But I want to make sure people knew that part of Boston's history, because that's something that people should be proud of that we did as a city in the early 1980s. It seems like Sally Alley went over to join me on Twitch. That's good. Very wise. And now two other stories that I wanted to highlight and that I know are the Red Sox on now? Can someone tell me that? Or do they start at 8.30? I always get it mixed up. Anyway, this is a big Red Sox game. But the there's a big piece of news today, and I want to make sure I really cover it because everyone's going to have to memorize these talking points about the Proposition 22-style legislation that will be on the ballot, it seems, ballot initiative here in Massachusetts in 2022 which would extend very similar language and legislation from what happened in California, Proposition 22, which basically created a new tier of workers, solidified that independent contractors who are mislabeled as that because they are workers by every definition we have, people who drive for Uber, Lyft, TaskRabbit, which is a company that I have been an independent contractor for, DoorDash, Grubhub, all that stuff. And they're trying to bring this legislation here in Boston. And what I'm showing on the screen now is the homepage of the Massachusetts Coalition for Independent Work, which is the front for Uber, for Lyft, for all these companies. And they spent, I think, close to a quarter of a billion dollars on the ballot initiative out in California. So God knows what they're going to spend here. But this is their website. 
You see a nice smiling worker. She has the mask. She has a nondescriptive blue hat, which is very odd. So this is probably some strange stock footage. And let's read what their mission is. Protecting independent workers. The Massachusetts Coalition for Independent Work is dedicated to securing flexibility and scheduling, providing new benefits, including health care stipends, paid sick time, paid family and medical leave, and occupational accident insurance, and guaranteeing, guaranteeing an earnings floor for all app-based drivers in Massachusetts. Doesn't that sound awesome? Who could possibly be against that? What could possibly be wrong with providing benefits and good pay for our independent workers. I, I want to read just a little bit more. Here's some figures they give us. In Massachusetts, 82% of app-based drivers work 15 hours per week or less. I don't get why I would need to have that stat. But continuing. By a 7 to 1 margin, app-based rider share and delivery drivers in Massachusetts support the proposed ballot measure. Love to know where they got that statistic because there is a union against it. But let's keep going. And uh, what does this do? Why is this uh, so great for Uber and Lyft drivers? Secures the overwhelmingly popular flexibility that app-based rideshare and delivery drivers currently enjoy. Provides historic new benefits. Historic. Guarantees, oh, and here we go, an earnings floor of 120% of the state minimum wage. $18 per hour for 2023, not including tips. So this is promising their drivers $18 an hour plus tips. Doesn't that sound awesome? Unfortunately, it's not at all true, as I'm sure you know the lead up was. And I mentioned this in the 60 second breakdown. I mentioned this in the podcast uh, this morning. But a study that came out of the labor center from UC Berkeley titled Massachusetts Uber Lyft Ballot Proposition would create sub-minimum wage. Drivers could earn as little as $4.82 an hour. I'm now going to quote from the article. Our review of the proposition leads to a very different estimate. By that, they mean a different estimate than the, and I'll read the line up before it, as in California, the Massachusetts proposition claims that drivers will receive a guarantee pay equal to 120% the minimum wage which would calculate to $18. But again, quoting now, our review of the proposition leads to a very different estimate. After considering multiple loopholes, we find that the majority of Massachusetts drivers could earn as little as $4.82, while the minority of drivers, those who qualify for that health care stipend that they labeled as historic, would actually only earn $6.74 per hour. And again, a lot of this has to do with the fine print which is not there. The number one time, the number one is driver waiting time is not counted as work time. Every single person can visualize for themselves, if you have never done it, being an Uber or Lyft driver. You dropped off your fare, the people are out of the vehicle, and you see this happen, your driver stays stationary because what they're doing is they're waiting for another fare to pick up. While they're waiting, they are now considered off the clock. Uber and Lyft no longer consider them workers. They consider them as they punched out, they went home. And so all of that time that they are just waiting for somebody else to pick them up, this is no longer considered work. And this, one of the reasons this legislation is so dangerous is because it opens the door 
to implementing this in all different types of careers. So imagine you're a nurse. Okay, well, you entered the room, you're now providing care. But, you know, when you leave the room and you're walking down the hallway at the hospital, you're actually no longer working with patients. So we're not going to track you and we're not going to pay you for that in-between walking time. Same with teachers. And you can see how this can be used as only considering the actual time on task. And there's all this software being developed. There was something that at my job they brought up about how it tracks what you're doing on the computer and how much of your engagement time, all of that stuff. That is what it's all leading to is basically redefining the workday and paying you less. What were some of the other built-in loopholes of this? Under-reimbursed costs during drivers' engaged driving time. Has to do with the reimbursement rate of how much it costs for gas. Unreimbursed vehicle work expenses between rides. Healthcare stipend. Let's read a little bit about this. The company would offer a healthcare stipend to drivers who average at least 15 engaged hours. That's that key phrase in a calendar quarter. And who are not, oh, I'm sorry, and who are enrolled in a qualifying ACA healthcare plan. The size of the stipend depends on the number of engaged hours driven. Drivers averaging between 15 and 25 engaged hours per week during a quarter could receive a stipend equivalent to 41% of the average minimum for a bronze ACA plan. God, this is complex. Since one-third of drivers' work time is between rides, we estimate that a typical driver would need an average of at least 22 and a half hours a week of actual work time to meet this stipend. Since the stipend is a lump sum per month, the value per hour changes with the number of hours worked. At the higher end, we estimate that an eligible driver averaging 40 actual hours a week for a quarter would receive a stipend equivalent to $2.18 an hour. Finally, the last little loophole, unpaid payroll taxes and compulsory employee benefits that this does not calculate. And... We'll leave this with the conclusion. The ballot proposition would thus reduce pay standards for gig drivers by two-thirds from existing law and rescind protections for workers that have been in place since the 1930s. The companies, in short, want to obtain legal permission to pay their drivers a sub-minimum wage, period. So make sure you memorize those stats. Memorize how much is actually going to pay because... They will do what they did in California. They will dump a quarter of a billion dollars in our airways trying to convince Uber drivers that this $18 per hour is actually real, trying to convince them that people like me who have a full-time job are going to try to tell independent workers what to do because of some social experiment I have or whatever the talking points are going to be. They're going to say that you are, because so many of our drivers are minority, that you're actually being racist by condescending to them, by trying to tell them that you know better, that you're actually being racist, denying them these $18 per hour, which again is completely fictional and BS. And so everyone just has to get ready for this. And thank you to the University of California, Berkeley, for doing this study. Uh, Salty Alley, thank you for the socks update. And if you could drop the score in the chat, that would be even better for me. And uh, Ran Bodingo Man, hello from Mashpee. Hello, Mashpee. Side Pre Kumar, 
Boston local, and you've been super helpful. Thank you for that. That's awesome. And now the, the last story before we all go switch on the socks. And this has to do with safe injection sites. The Massachusetts legislature had hearings on this issue. People have anecdotally told me that there was some great one nothing socks. All right. People anecdotally told me that there were some fantastic experts, advocates there who could speak to this issue with clarity, which is fantastic. I know Frank Baker was there to speak out against it. I'm sure there were other lawmakers who spoke out against it as well. I know Anissa Sabi George is against it. And what I found, and this is a little old, so I'm going to add this with a disclaimer. If the editorial staff of the Boston Herald has rescinded this position that safe injection sites harm community, I will make sure to add the correction. But I knew they would have a take on it, and I knew it would be bad. So after opining about how horrible the addiction crisis is, this is what the Boston Herald is telling their readership. But just as a substance abuse addiction concerns not just his or herself, but family and friends, so too do safe injection sites affect more than users, but the community at large. A safe injection site wouldn't supply the drugs. And so users would still be doing whatever they have to to score a hit, including theft and prostitution for many. We doubt those living and working in the neighborhoods where safe injection sites would be located would feel would welcome the threat to public safety. Drug dealers, on the other hand, would come out on top. And this is really the messaging, that if you have a safe injection site in your community, it will increase crime. It'll make that community more unsafe. Now, they never provide any evidence of does that happen because safe injection sites have been used for years and years to the point that we have sufficient data on this topic. They take it as a given that it'll be unsafe for your community. They also talk about how similar to a bar over-serving, if someone OD'd, I guess would be the comparison, in a safe injection site, now the city will be sued. It's not at all true. And as we're going to get to, that actually has never happened. No one has ever died using a safe injection site. Why is that? Well, it begins with that first word, meaning they're safe. And we'll get to that in a, another a great op-ed that was published in today's Boston Globe. Ending with the Herald, substance addiction is not an easy problem to fix by any means, but solutions that focus on recovery rather than enabling would be better serve us all, which again is BS, but let's, let's I guess, actually get to it. So I have more to the study that I just want people to know about, but this was a great op-ed titled, We Can't Arrest Our Way Out of Mass and Casts by Carl Rose. And I'm going to read from this a little bit. Civil liberties advocates, business leaders, and Boston mayoral candidates all agree. Should be singular. Michelle Wu was the only one still running, which supports this. New approaches are needed to address the pressing public health crisis in the area of Massachusetts Avenue and Onea Cass Boulevard. It goes on to talk about the failure of the war on drugs, the criminalization rather than treatment, which right now everyone states, but then still you keep hearing solutions, which is nothing more than punishment. Experience across the country and around the world demonstrates that harm reduction strategies are key to saving lives and keeping communities healthier. 
safe consumption sites, like the pilot pro projected. Forgive me, like the pilot. I have it like my like small font on my screen because I'm trying to broadcast it and monitor some things at the same time. Safe consumption sites, like the pilot project recently authorized in Rhode Island, are illustrative. These medical facilities provide a person who uses drugs with a sterilized equipment and access to healthcare services, as well as overdose reversal medications as needed, like Narcan, free from fear of criminal prosecution. Already operational in Canada, Australia, and Europe, safe consumption sites are proven to save lives because they create a contained site for drug use, a safe space for people to access substance use disorder treatment information and referrals, and immediate medical intervention when needed. There is no evidence of increased crime associated with these facilities. In fact, safe consumption sites help create safer communities by reducing public drug consumption and publicly discarded syringes and supplies. And I know I've said this multiple times before, but we already have injection sites in this country. The difference is they are not safe. The difference is they are our playgrounds, our streets, our subway stations, the restrooms at Target, at Stop and Shop. And people will seek those out because they are safer areas to consume drugs. And so the conundrum, or I don't know what to call it, the fork in the road that communities have to acknowledge is do we want to continue to have unsafe, expensive, deadly injection sites in our cities, or do we want to have safe injection sites? And now this is from an NPR article, which just goes into a little bit more detail about where that previous op-ed got its figures. Still, he says, the research, quoting somebody from above, points to the benefits, especially in preventing deaths among society's most vulnerable. A 2014 review of 75 different studies concluded such places promote, again, safe, inje safe injection conditions reduce overdoses, and increase access to health services. Supervised injection sites were associated with less outdoor drug use, and they did not appear to have ne any negative impacts on crime or drug use. There is no other policy that I advocate for and many others in the city which is as clear in the data of working as safe injection sites. It just isn't. If you want to save lives, safe injection sites. If you want to save money, safe injection sites. If you want to increase treatment, safe injection sites. If you want to decrease open drug use and crime, safe injection sites. There is nothing even comparable as a quick, easy, not a complete solution to the problems of homelessness and addiction in our society, but the most actionable that you could do on day one than safe injection sites. And it is beyond absurd that our state legislature just won't let cities and towns have the option if they want to. And that's another thing. I would mandate it. I would say that the state will be running safe injection sites wherever we choose. I believe this legislation just says if a city or town wants to do it, they can't because it's right now banned by federal law. But guess what? So is marijuana. And we all legalize that. And I know the city of Somerville has already passed an ordinance basically saying, we're in, you, you allow us to do this and we'll do it. And so just remember, and there's, again, ample data. If there's ever anything that we have data on, it is about 
what works and what doesn't when it comes to drug treatment. And denying safe injection sites most certainly is that. And for those who saw the sheriff's idea of forced treatment, it doesn't work. We have the data for that, too. But, all right. I wanted to hop on. I wanted to say hi to you all. Those are just some stories I wanted to hit. We have four, five weeks left until the general election. So I'm going to be, I'm going to try to do this at least for the next four to five weeks. I'm now visualizing that final week right before November 2nd is of course D-Day, but I will pop on on the 3rd to go over the results. Let's knock on wood that we have a Wu victory, Kendra Hicks victory, a Somerville smash. I don't know what people want me to call it. A Cambridge victory, a Medford victory. And as always, if you want to get involved, you want to be a part of history, DM me. Love to have you. And so with that, I'm going to say goodbye to the Twitch, YouTube, Facebook community. Take care. I'm going to say goodnight to the podcast crew, and I'll see you all tomorrow.